It is a wonderful thing to have all of our young people here. And on that note, I will encourage you, young people, your attention during the preaching of God's Word is one of the most important things you could ever give yourself to, alongside of the attention you give your mother and father when they have family devotions throughout the week. When you have the Word of God open to you, that is the time to listen above all other times. And I encourage you to do that, and I pray that God will bless you in your great pursuit of listening to his word, whether it's at home or at church. Now, moms and dads, I also understand what this holds for you. I'm reminded of the fact that there are Sundays in, Sundays out, that some people don't hear the sermon because of the kids and because you are trying to train your kids in the things of the Lord to help them to sit still or to help them pay attention. And I want you to know that the Lord knows about those things and he cares about those things. And uh, I commend you for what you're doing in training your kids. And they'll be greatly helped down the road by the fact that you, you brought them to church year in, year out. And uh, they found out what was important to you and what ought to be important to them. So I commend you to that. And if you do miss anything, I always encourage you with the fact that the recordings are online and the manuscripts are in front of you, or always accessible, you can send me a, a note, and I will get you a copy of whatever you need, even going back. I'm happy to do that. But I do encourage you as we study God's Word together. All right? Let's take our Bibles. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I was talking with Rachel this last week in preparation for this study and I was voicing my concerns to her. My chief concerns about the book of Revelation is how other people teach through the book. And that's a problem because it's a common thing for pastors to not only read the Scriptures, but to study what people have said about the Scriptures to try to make sure that what they say has been said some other time in history. It's not a good thing for a pastor to be a maverick and find something brand new in Scripture as if he is someone who has the corner on truth and it's never been before. That said, the common thing that happens when you study the book of Revelation, in my opinion, is that you don't so much get a study of the book, but you get a study in systematic theology. In other words, when they come to a chapter of the book, like chapter 6, it's not a time to explain what chapter 6 says. It's a time to explain a system of theology. Whether it's a preterist view or a futurist view or an idealist view, a lot of views. Or if it's a premillennial view or a postmillennial view or an amillennial view, they come and they explain the text in terms of their system. And I don't like that because it's too far away from the text so often. And it often doesn't do a very good job explaining the text. The other way to explain this passage is to say something simple like there are four horses and horsemen. There's a fifth seal and then miraculous signs. And then to kind of just jabber for a little while, but not really to make connection between what's here and all of those points. You know, why are there 
four horsemen. What do they do? What does it mean? And I think some of that in explaining it has been lost because a lot of people don't come to this book like the common person comes to his Bible reading in the morning. When you get up in the morning and you read the Bible, you pick it up and you read it. You read it like it's a story. And you don't have all the systems and the charts in front of you, and you don't have a lot of other things that, that studies give themselves to. You just have the words of Scripture in front of you like the saints of old had. Some of them didn't have, and all that they had was a Sunday morning when a preacher would read the Scriptures to them and explain them. My hope as I had come to a passage like this is that readers of God's Word will come to understand God's Word better. Not that they'll understand a system better, but that when you come to Revelation 6, you'll get it. You'll know what's there, and you know how it connects with comes before, what comes before and comes after. That is my hope. So, as a brief introduction, as a brief introduction, what was Jesus Christ doing before we came to Revelation 4 and 5? We know that Jesus Christ came to earth, he died, he rose, and he returned to heaven. There he was seated at the right hand of the Father, and there he remains seated until, as the Father says, he makes his enemies his footstool. He is waiting there. Indeed, he is ruling over his church, which we saw in the first vision, chapters 1 through 3, but he is waiting there. He is reigning positionally over his church, but he is not yet reigning universally. Obviously, if Jesus were reigning universally, this room would be packed. But it's not because he is not yet reigning universally. And the drama of this book is about Jesus standing, taking the scroll, and bringing heaven's kingdom to earth. That's where we are in the story of this book. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider today Revelation 6 and the first six seals. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word now, we pray that the passage of Scripture, which has been presented in many ways and many times, we would just understand a bit more, and in particular, that we would see Christ magnified in it, as I believe is its point. We pray that you will help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's fictional trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, the battle for Middle-earth is set forth. And at the heart of those books is a ring of power, a ring which must be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. And through a variety of events, the ring comes into the company of noble figures, such as Gimli, the dwarf, Legolas, the elf, Gandalf, the wizard, Aragon, the heir of Isildur, and Frodo Baggins, a hobbit. And at the gathering of the Council of Elrond, the task of bearing the ring to Mount Doom is taken up. And at this council, those present argue and contend for the task. But finally, Frodo Baggins, the hobbit, stands and declares, I will take it. 
and those around pledge their support to his quest. Now, in Revelation 5, there is a similar yet different scene. A scroll is in the hand of the sovereign God, which is the focus. And it is taken. That is the matter of consideration. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? You see, unlike the Council of Elrond, no one fought over the task to take the scroll. They all knew better than to step forward such a task as reclaiming the earth and establishing the kingdom of God. Only one was worthy who had done the Father's will by taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death. It was the Lamb of God who was slain who was worthy to take the scroll, and he did. And when the Father had given judgment to the Son, all honored the Son as they honored the Father. In chapter 4, we saw that the Father was honored. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. That is the one who was seated on the throne. We turn to chapter 5, and the Son is honored. Verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, heaven's song of praise is to the Savior and the Sovereign. Yet John 5 tells us that all would honor the Son. All would honor the Son. And that is fulfilled in verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 5, where all in creation sing that song. Question, has that scene, has that event already happened? Young people, are all in creation worshiping the Son as they worship the Father? No. We all know people personally who do not give God the Son honor that is due Him. We know people who don't even care about Jesus Christ, who curse His name. So if this scene has not yet happened, when will it happen? Well, it will happen once Christ has completed the victory of God by reclaiming the earth and establishing the kingdom. So what we have in chapter 5 between verses 12 and 13 is a chronological break without any unique marker to let us know. We only know there's a break because of the content, which is so plain. But that really shouldn't seem strange to us because we know that this book is a book of prophecy, and this is a common feature in prophecy to compress a number of events into one prophecy, events that are hundreds or thousands of years apart. Some of the most popular of these would be the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And you know that Jesus Christ quoted that prophecy in part and stopped midway through in the middle of the sentence because there was more yet to come in the future. Or you can think of the prophet Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 where he's promised, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's spoken by Peter on the day of Pentecost, but it was not completely fulfilled on that day. Although the prophecy pressed together events thousands of years apart. The point then is, one day all in heaven and on earth will honor the Son as they honor the Father. The story isn't 
simply in the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to win and some are going to be glad and some are going to be mad. The story that we will find is not going to be like the United States of America every four years in November, where some are happy and some are mad. The promise is that all will honor the Son, every creature. Now, it must have seemed like a pipe dream for the churches in Asia Minor, because there were few in Asia Minor who honored the Son, even as today there are few who honor the Son. But how is it that the few are going to grow into all of creation? The answer is the Lamb is going to open the scroll. The Lamb is going to do the Father's will by judging the earth. Now we have to wait and see if the Father's plan to gain the Son glory by making Him the judge of the earth is going to succeed. As we go into chapter 6, we'll see it begin to succeed. In the first eight verses, we see Christ's judgment will begin unnoticed. His judgment will begin unnoticed. We see this in the first four seals that the Lamb opens. And as we move through this chapter and these judgments through the second half of this book, we're going to find that the Lamb is orchestrating world events in in a unique and miraculous way. When the first four seals are open, certain things happen. First, there's going to be a living creature who says, come. It's like an expression of desire that God's will will be carried out. It's like our amen. There's going to be a colored horse that appears with a rider who has some sort of power over the earth. Third, three of these riders are going to be given something, demonstrating that God has a part and he is in control over these seals. So let's read the first in chapter 6, verse 1. Now I, that's John, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. In this we find that Christ will bring peace to the earth. Now, you need to immediately question me and say, there is no mention of the word peace in this first seal. So why is that the point? Well, as we look at the second seal, there is a removal of peace from the earth. Therefore, we can conclude that the effect of the first seal is peace. And that helps us understand the rest of the elements of this first seal. The writer here comes on a white horse. It points to a triumph. He possesses a weapon showing his power and his strength. He is given a crown pointing to victory, and he has a series of victories. He comes out conquering and to conquer. So it would seem that this rider affects a measure of peace upon the earth, and he does so through diplomacy. I say that because even though there are mentioned of a weapon and victories, there is no mention of bloodshed. This is a conquest without blood. Diplomacy. Now, some people think that this rider is Jesus Christ himself because Jesus Christ will one day come again riding a white horse, chapter 19, verse 11. But that doesn't fit because Christ is opening the seals and successive seals. 
how could he also be the one riding on the horse? It would seem much better to say that this first rider resembles the Messiah. He's a false Christ. And that fits with our understanding of the rest of Scripture, particularly Matthew 24 with the Olivet Discourse, because many false Christs will come. They will bring about a temporary peace. And if, it's, if this passage is going to go parallel to the Olivet Discourse, we would then expect war to come. Let's look at the second. Verses 3 through 4, this is where Christ will bring war to the earth. Verse 3, and he opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was given to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. You see, following there's a time of bloodshed. Hundreds, thousands, millions, or more died from it. But we know that will come suddenly. First Thessalonians 5.3 says, People will be saying there is peace and security. Then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. What's unique about this bloodshed is its scope. It will be global. Peace is taken from all the earth, and so bloodshed comes after it. And it might seem that there is a simple natural progression here, that a failure in diplomacy results in war. But instead of a, a natural causation, we ought to see that Christ, the Lamb, is the one who is ending the one, ending the peace, and bringing the next. And what comes after war? Well, famine. Christ not only brings peace, not only brings war, but he brings famine to the earth. Verse 5 in the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Say, what are those? That is the instrument of the marketplace. We still have scales at the grocery store with which we buy produce. Scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius. In our language, that would be one day's wage for one person's food. Not enough food to feed a family. And three quarts of barley for denarius. That's one day's wage for three people's food, but it would be a food that has poor nutrition. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So a war-ridden earth experienced dearth of food. And it seems that this famine is something that impacts the poor more greatly than it impacts the rich because of that mention of the oil and the wine, which were more expensive commodities. But what is quite unique about this seal is that the words of God are heard. It is from the midst of those living creatures that this word comes. It comes from God. God is the one who is determining the market prices. Think about that for a moment. He is affecting the supplies of food on the earth. It's not stated how many die from the famine, but death is what follows. Because in the fourth seal, Christ brings death to the earth. Verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the, four living creature, the fourth living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, a horse that is deathly looking, ashen or yellowish green, pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, that's disease, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, without even calculating the deaths that have happened so far in the seals, a quarter of today's population is roughly two billion people. Perhaps to put that into perspective, it has been reported that a half a million have died from coronavirus. That's in comparison to two billion who will die as an effect of this seal being opened. That is more than the populations of the United States and China combined. That is a lot of people. The means of death is going to be personal violence. You see there the sword. There will be famine, a lack of food. There will be the spread of disease. And there will be animals. And this must be terrifying because animals who for the longest of times had had a fear of man ever since the flood, seemingly they're going to lose that fear. And come after people. And I ask you a simple question. Has this already happened? Has this already happened? You know, the book of Revelation hasn't given us a timeline like other places in the scriptures do so far. So has this already taken place? Have we already, in the course of human history, lost a quarter of our population? No. That is to say, this event is still future. And the judgments that precede it are sequential. John has made this quite plain, and this is how we understand things. It comes one, two, three, four. Things happen sequentially. And when, and when. All of these references in this chapter make us think one happens after the next. The normal way of reading the Scriptures See, what happens in these seals hasn't happened yet, but it will be devastating. But seemingly, most on the earth are just going to chalk this experience up to a natural process taking place. People are going to say, yeah, there was a time of peace, there was a time of war, there was a time of famine, a time of death. That's just how things go. But the Lord tells us that it's not just natural events. It's His work. But even in this, only a portion of the population is slain. And that is to show Jesus is merciful. He doesn't bring all of his judgment at once, but instead his judgment comes progressively and it increases in severity. He is merciful even in his judgment. Not bringing the hammer down all at once. So... His judgment begins unnoticed, but it will not go unfinished. That's what we learn in the fifth seal. Christ's judgment will not go unnoticed. The Lamb opens the fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, doesn't this seal sound altogether different? There are no horses. There's no riders. There's no miraculous signs. But instead, there are the words of the saints that have been slain. And we may think words, that sounds pretty benign. 
How can this be the judgment of God? Well, these words are not benign because these words reveal there's a spiritual conflict on the earth. On one side are those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers who have shed blood unjustly. And in this seal, we see that Christ hears the martyrs call for justice. John saw the souls of the slain under the altar in heaven, and he explained how they had been slain. It was because of their testimony that they had as followers of Jesus Christ. They had a conspicuous testimony as Christians, which demonstrated they were true followers of Christ. This description matches that of Apostle John in chapter 1, verses 2 and 9. These are true believers who have been slain. John recorded their cry for justice. And it's not so much that they doubted that God would bring justice to their perpetrators who were at that very moment walking on the earth. They were crying out for our blood. They knew that God would bring justice. They acknowledged him as the sovereign master who is holy and true. But their question was this, how long, how long? That is to say, they knew that the justice of God was not yet complete. Their cry is for vengeance, but their cry is not vindictive. We know that because of where these people are. They're in heaven. They are no longer stained with sin. Their cry instead is for God's judgment to come, for Christ to execute judgment. And Christ assures them of justice. Verse 11, Then they each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're assured that there will be an end to injustice. That is not going to allow sin to go on endlessly. The blood of the martyrs is precious to the Lord, as it says in Psalm 72. God is going to act on their behalf. Just as when Israel cried from slavery in Egypt, God heard them and God answered them. And God's going to reward those who are slain for his sake. He's going to give them white robes. And he tells them that there are more who are going to die for the faith. Now, I'd say at this point, we need to think of the saints in Smyrna and Sardis as we hear these words. Because these words rang true in the words of the letters to these churches. The church of Smyrna had been exhorted not to fear what they were about to suffer because some of them would die for Christ's sake. And now they hear that those who are in the future during the sealed judgments, will die for their faith because they had a conspicuous testimony. And how much they must have been encouraged themselves to realize that those who were slain were in heaven. The cause of Christ is not a vain thing. It is true. Those in Sardis, they had been challenged by these words as well. This church in Sardis was a church that lacked integrity, except for a few who were unsoiled and worthy to be clothed in white. This was a church who would think if we're going to find ourselves in glory and receive white robes, our faith can't remain a facade. We can't remain a dead church. They're not going to wear white robes unless they're worthy 
like the unsoiled among them. These references that come up in the letters and then come up again in this prophetic section must have gained their attention. And when, when we imagine what those first readers must have thought, we understand what we ought to think of ourselves. Simple questions. Is your faith conspicuous? Is your faith in Christ obvious? Did your neighbors say that? Would they know who to come after if Christians were going to be persecuted? Second, are you committed to follow Christ whatever the cost? Because these were slain for following Christ. And those must have been the thoughts that went through the minds of the saints in Asia Minor as they learned from this fifth seal. But more than that, more than seeing something true about ourselves, we learn about Jesus because he is committed to completing his judgment. His judgment may begin unnoticed by the world, but it will not go unfinished. And we know that because of the sixth seal. Because in the sixth seal, Christ's judgment will be unstoppable. And that will be plain to all. Christ is going to bring natural disasters on the earth. Listen as I read in beginning in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. In this seal, there are no riders, there are no horses. Here is a phenomenon affected directly by Christ himself. There's a great earthquake. An earthquake being the most destructive of forces. There have been a half million earthquakes that occur each year, science tells us. Only a a fifth of those were actually strong enough that we can feel. The largest earthquake that has ever been recorded was in 1960 in Chile. It recorded 9.5 on the Richter scale. The most destructive was in 1556 in China, where 830,000 people died. Black and like sackcloth. It will look black. Some people think that this is a solar eclipse, but probably not, because solar eclipses are things that scientists can chart. A couple of years ago, we had a solar eclipse, and we knew exactly when it would happen and where its path would be. These things are pretty scientific. It could be a phenomenon that comes from something else that blackens the sun, that clouds it from our eyes, things like massive forest fires and fog and the like. The moon will look red like blood. Some people would say this is a lunar eclipse, but of course that doesn't work with a solar eclipse. Because in these two eclipses, the the position of the earth and the moon are reversed, if you know the science of them. So they can't happen at the same time. But there are many disasters that could cause the moon to look red. For example, the eruption of volcanoes, which could be caused by the earthquake. It has been recorded that when a supervolcano erupted in history, 1,200 cubic miles of volcanic ash and debris was thrown into the sky. 1,200 cubic miles. 
When Mount St. Helen blew, there was only a quarter of a cubic mile that was thrown. In addition to that, meteorites will fall from the sky to the earth. The word for star here points to any glowing body, such as a meteorite, something that passes through the atmosphere and that can strike the earth. And meteorites have struck the earth in the path. So what we should see when it says that the stars will fall to the earth, let's not bring our 21st century understanding of stars to the text Let's think of the original understanding, especially since when we get to chapter 8, verse 12, a third of the stars will be darkened. So what we have seemingly here is Christ showering meteorites down on the earth. It'll be quite a sight. It says the sky will vanish. It will be rolled up like a scroll. And we really don't have anything in history to understand what this is. But there's going to be huge changes in the sky. Six, every mountain and island will be moved. The translation in the ESV says removed. That's not warranted. Just take a pen, strike out R-E. Translations can get things wrong. Every mountain and island will be moved. That means the maps will be wrong. The Rockies won't be where the Rockies are. With all of these earthquakes, things are going to move. And when all of these things happen, it'll be like nothing that has ever happened before. The scale would be so different. And we know that because of its effect. The effect upon those who live on the earth will be despair because Christ will not only bring disaster, he will bring despair on the earth. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave or free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? You see, it's when we get to the sixth seal that every single person wakes up to what has been taking place. They didn't notice the judgments before, but they do notice his judgment now. As we look at this long list, it's something that's all-encompassing, but as you look at it, you'll notice that it's top-heavy. The rich and the powerful are mentioned more, perhaps because the famine had a greater impact on the poor. More of the poor of the earth died. Perhaps that's a reason. But let's look at the two ways that these folks respond. First, they hide. They hide. They hide in mountains, which is an irrational thing to do. An irrational thing to do. When they know the Lord is at work and at play, they hide. And they acknowledge that what is happening is the wrath of God and no one can stand against it. I want you to draw two conclusions from this. At this moment, when they realize that it is God at work, instead of going to God, they hide from God. Like Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And the pastoral comment I would have on that is this. It is not a safe thing to think 
that you will turn around when things get worse. Because when things get worse on the earth, people don't run to God. They run to the mountains and hide from God. It is not a safe thing to think, God, if you don't want me to do this, do something. Change something. That's not a safe way to operate. The best way to operate is to listen to what God says in his word and to do it. Because we shouldn't have confidence that one day we'll just get it when really bad things happen. That's not what happens here. The second thing I want you to see is that all these people come to an accurate knowledge of God. I really get amazed by this. They all come to know true things about God. They all come to realize that the wrath of God has come. You say, where did they get all of that understanding? To fill in, to fill in the blanks, we, we just think it must have been the testimony of all of those saints who were slain who told them this is the wrath of God, turn and repent. It must be, perhaps, when all of those saints had been raptured, and then all those who found, perhaps, the sermons in your Bibles, and one day they read them, and they trust Christ, and they witness for Christ, and they're slain for Christ's sake, that people learn this is God at work. And they admit, just like so many scriptures say, who can stand against this judgment of God? Revelation 6, as we close, it opens with six, is the opening of the six seals. It's the opening of the six seals. Christ has reclaimed, he has claimed his right to the earth, and now he initiates a conflict to win the earth. Those earth dwellers, those usurpers. And he is going to do so, so he will get glory and honor. You say, really, is that where this is going to get to? Is Jesus Christ really going to be magnified in the eyes of people through his judgment? Yes. Remember I told you in the end of chapter 5, there were two people on the podium? It was the sovereign and the Savior. And as we end chapter 6, who are the people on the podium? Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Already, the people on earth are beginning to understand the Sovereign and the Savior. No one can stand against them. So indeed, the Lamb who comes conquering is beginning to get glory for His namesake. Father, we praise You that in Your wisdom You will magnify Jesus Christ. It is indeed despicable that people curse his name today. One day people will fear him. They will stand in awe of him. And Father, we pray that people before that day would repent and trust in him. That is our hope. Father, for us, like those saints in Asia Minor, we pray that you would give us patience that you would give us endurance, that you would help us to have lives of integrity that are worthy of white robes, lives that are obviously given to Jesus Christ. No one would question that we are Christians. 
We pray that you'll help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.